I can time <clears throat> tight is just right. Get my head start going. Well, <clears throat> how are you all doing today? Good. good. It's so good to see you. I want to talk about something this morning that's very, very important uh, for us. Those who want to go to heaven. Uh, I think about it quite often, actually. Uh, we got one life to live, and after that comes the judgment. Uh, and, of course, when the judgment comes, that's all she wrote. It's over. Uh, there's no uh, take two or anything else. We get it right the first time or we just suffer the consequences of bad decisions. So it's good to learn as we, as we grow uh, more and more about what the Lord's expectations are for us. Uh, those of us who have been following Christ for a lot of years, uh, his expectations of us is greater than it is for younger folks, for example. Uh, given the opportunity we've had to develop over the years, uh, naturally more would be required of us than it would a younger person. And when I talk about young, I'm talking about young in Christ. A person could be 60 years old and be young in Christ uh, because it does take time to develop. And some truths as I'm going to talk about this morning, some truths takes a long time to truly grasp and be capable of applying those principles to your life. So always remember, whenever we teach or preach or whatever, that we're talking about the, the perfect person, okay? What is perfection in the eyes of the Lord. That's our target, that's our goal, that's what we're aiming for. And we're all somewhere on the road trying to get there. And it ranges from the beginning all the way up to the near end. Uh, so don't ever be startled by God's truth. It's a revelation of what we are to become during our lifetime. Now, Jesus returned to Nazareth. That's what Ronald read just a moment ago in Luke chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit farther with my reading. It's going to go through verse 30, beginning with verse 14 through 30. We'll not read it all at one time. I'll break it up as we go and analyze it. <clears throat> verse 14 says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. When you look at the map of Palestine, Galilee is a relatively small place for us. Uh, it was a large place for them. Uh, Josephus says there was 240 cities and villages in Galilee. I don't know about that. That seems like a stretch to me, which he is prone to do from time to time. But uh, there were a lot of cities and villages in this very small area. Uh, that's where Jesus was taken to. How old? I don't know. Maybe about two years old. You recall when uh, Herod wanted to destroy the infant Jesus at birth that Joseph was instructed by the Lord to take him down to Egypt. And they stayed in Egypt for a spell. I don't know how long. Let's suppose it's two years, I guess. And uh, he started back for Bethlehem where the Lord was born. And he was told on the way to don't go to Bethlehem, go on up to uh, Galilee. So Joseph went up into Galilee, and he came to this village called Nazareth. 
And that's where he decided to put down his roots, <clears throat> open up his carpenter business, and raise his family. Now, Jesus has probably been living there for about 28 years, okay? And we're told that he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Well, in order for him to return to Galilee, he had to leave Galilee. Now, the Lord left Galilee from time to time. Actually, from the time he was 12 up, he left every year, at least once, <clears throat> in order to go to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. He would go with his family as they went to Jerusalem. So Jesus, uh, he's familiar with a lot of things. He's familiar with going to the synagogue and worshiping. He's familiar with the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he's familiar with the people that he lived around, the small-knit community, uh, living there for 28 years. He knew his neighbors very well, I suppose. Uh, he knew the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. He'd seen it all during his lifetime. Well, on this particular occasion, Jesus turned 30, and it was time for him to enter his ministry. According to the old law, the priests entered their ministry at the age of 30. So when the Lord turned 30, he left Nazareth, and he went down to the Jordan River, where John the baptizer was baptizing people in the Jordan. He went there to be baptized by John, and he was. He came up from the waters of his baptism, and he began to teach uh, people. And he made some disciples. I think there was about half a dozen, maybe, that he made at this particular time. He stayed in Judea for a little while, not too long, because he had to go back into Galilee in order to attend a wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. So he and his disciples went back north. Uh, they went to Cana. Uh, they celebrated with uh, people getting married there. Jesus performed his first miracle. He turned water into wine. And uh, he taught the people around Capernaum for a short spell, couldn't have been long, maybe a month, I guess. But it couldn't have been long. And then he decided he needed to get back down to J Jerusalem because the time of the Passover had come. And as a, a good Jewish man would do, he went to the Passover. This time, though, he's 30 years old. Now, after the Passover, According to my calculations, I believe the Lord stayed in Judea about 10, maybe 11 months. And he went from village to village, city to city, town to town, uh, preaching the gospel of good tidings. Well, because of the events that occurred in Jerusalem at the Passover, and because of his teaching, Jesus' name was getting kicked around about this time, at least among the religious people. They were picking up on this Jesus of Nazareth as being some kind of a rabbi, a different kind of a rabbi. Anyway, his time was up. He went back to Galilee. But first he made a short stop at Jacob's well. He needed to uh, take a rest. So he stopped there at Jacob's well, and not far off was the city of Sychar, and that's, you remember, where the encounter he had with a woman from Sychar in John chapter 4. She came out and visited with the Lord. She realized that he was the Messiah, the prophet of God. She went back in town to, told the townsfolk. They came back out and they wanted to meet him. They did, and he stayed and hung around there for about two days. 
which was unheard of. You know, the Jews, when they, if they had to cross through Samaria, when they got through, when they got out of Samaritan territory, they just cleaned themselves up good. They cleaned themselves, they cleaned their clothes, they got every speck of dust off of them they could get because that was tainted land. They didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans unless, of course, it involved an opportunity to make money. And if they could make money, then they would deal with the Samaritans. Other than that, they had no dealings with them whatsoever. Jesus and his disciples now are staying with them, talking with them, eating with them, and he spent his two days, and then he went back on to Galilee. Now, that's what Dr. Luke is talking about right here. Jesus returned to Galilee. This was after the Passover, quite a long time after the Passover. He did so in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. What does it mean by the power of the Spirit? If you recall, when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God descended on him in a form like a dove. Well, once the Spirit descended on the Lord, he remained with the Lord throughout his entire ministry. So when Jesus left Galilee, about maybe a year earlier, when Jesus left Galilee, the Spirit, in this sense, wasn't with him. When he came back to Galilee, he was. He was a different man. He was a different person. He had qualities and abilities that he hadn't had before. Uh, he had knowledge of the will of God and things such as that, but he received the Spirit without measure when he was baptized by John, and now he's going back to Galilee, and he is going to knock their socks off because the man they used to know, he's no longer that man anymore. He's different. Jesus preached around the vicinity of Galilee some. I don't know how much. And then he went on into Capernaum. That's a large city in Galilee. Uh, again, from Josephus, he says they had about 200 synagogues. I think that's a stretch. Uh, I don't believe the city would have helped that many. But at any rate, uh, he preached a great deal in uh, the synagogues in Galilee. News of him went out throughout all the region, throughout Galilee and perhaps beyond the border. He was teaching the kingdom of God. He was teaching the good news that God had revealed to man. The great mystery from the foundation of the world had been revealed, and all people could now know what that mystery was. And Jesus proclaimed it. And to authenticate what he was saying, he exercised miraculous power. He was able to do things that none of these people had ever seen before. He healed the sick by the scores. On a few occasions, he even went so far as to raise the dead. There seemed to be nothing that he could not do if he chose to do it. And then, oh, everybody's talking about it. He's headline news. He's on the 5 o'clock news hour. Everybody's this man. This brother of ours, this fellow Galilean, look what he's capable of doing, okay? His fame had grown widespread. It's important to understand that. He taught in their synagogues. Now, the synagogues, sometimes we may misunderstand what they're like. 
This is the ruins of an ancient city found in Capernaum. The synagogues uh, were not cheap buildings. Uh, they were uh, relatively well built, not like our standards, but according to the ancients, they were very well built buildings. And in these buildings, the people would flock every Sabbath day and they would worship just like we do today. Well, Jesus did that all the time. As a boy, he was used to going to the synagogue on Sabbath. So whenever the Sabbath rolled around to sit to the synagogue, he went. He was teaching in their synagogues because there he had an audience waiting for him. Instead of standing out on the street corner and trying to round up an audience in the synagogue, he found an audience and he taught the people. And on occasion, he demonstrated his great powers and uh, it was amazing to the people. He was glorified by all who had seen him. Now keep those things in mind. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, where he had been raised. Perhaps 28 years, I believe, is a fair guess at the number of years our Lord stayed there, uh, working as a carpenter in his daddy's uh, shop, uh, producing product that would be for sale. And everybody around about knew this humble man uh, who was very kind, very meek, very compassionate, just an all-around nice guy. But they've heard tales about him some of them may have even witnessed him in action in Galilee. Maybe they heard him teach. I don't know. The majority did not, but they heard about him. And they're waiting for him. Because many people are speculating, could this be Messiah? Could this be the Messiah that Moses prophesied of? And others, of course, especially in Nazareth, they, uh-uh. He can't be no Messiah. He grew up right here with us. I've known that boy all his life. Nuh-uh. He's no Messiah. That's what he walked into. As his custom was, as he had been doing while in Galilee, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, but this time he was at home. He hadn't been there in about a year, but now he's home. He stood up to read. They offered him the opportunity to read scripture and then expound on it. There were seven men that participated in the worship in the Jewish synagogue. The first one would be the priest. He would be read a portion of the law. He might expound on it. He would sit down. And then there would be two Levites. One at a time would come up. They too, if they chose, read from the law or perhaps they would read from the prophets. And if they were able to do so, they would expound on them. Well, then they would choose four others. Of course, they had to be Jewish people in order to read in the synagogue. They knew who Jesus was. And apparently, the, the elder of the synagogue asked Jesus to read a portion of Scripture. And Jesus, more than likely, predetermined that he would read from the scroll of Isaiah when it came his time. 
So he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read like I'm doing right now. Now the Jewish custom was when you read the scripture from the sacred text, you stand, you always stand. And then when you get done and you're going to expound on the text like I'm doing right now, you got to sit down. And that's how the, he stood up in order to read the text. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. This book was actually a scroll that he was handed. You know how scrolls are, they're rolled up. Now, Isaiah's got a 66 chapters, pretty good-sized book. And I, the Lord would have to search through there in order to find the text he wanted to read from. They didn't have book and chapter divisions, verse divisions like we do. It was just writing from the beginning of Isaiah all the way down to the end. Jesus, he, he picked up the scroll, he took the scroll, and when he had opened the book, he found the place he wanted to read from. It was in the what we call the 61st chapter of Isaiah. He read verse 1, and then he read verse 2a. In other words, he didn't read the latter part of verse 2. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah, because he has anointed me, anointed me, appointed me. Uh, kings were anointed. They had oil poured on their heads, and they were anointed king. Uh, the uh, chief priest was anointed. He had oil poured on his head, and he was anointed in service to God. Jesus was anointed, but he was anointed by the Holy Spirit who descended on him in the form like a dove. He was anointed by God to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, this has often been misunderstood. The Lord is not talking about those who are in poverty. That's not what he has on his mind. It's not that he's showing compassion to those who are what we call poor. They're in the in the Greek language, there's about seven or eight different words that are actually translated poor in our English versions. And those degrees of poverty, they, they, they exist in degrees, if you will. So when Jesus is talking about poor here, he's talking about beggars. We read about the beggar Lazarus. The same word is used in that text as is used here when talking about the poor. Lazarus was a beggar. He laid at a gate outside of man's house. He depended on that man or passerbys to give him food. He was unable to walk. He was unable to help himself, take care of himself. So people were good enough to drop him off at that gate every day and he hoped that when somebody came in or out the driveway, they might give him a little something to eat. He was a beggar. Jesus said, blessed are those kinds of people. Now, Jesus is not talking about being a beggar in the sense that Lazarus was. He's talking about people who are spiritually bankrupt. People who are sinners. They know they're sinners. They know the penalty for their sins. They also know that there's not a thing they can do to help themselves. They're broken, just as much as Lazarus was broken. 
They're destitute, just as much as Lazarus was destitute. They had to have somebody help them or they wouldn't be able to get by. Jesus said, God anointed me to preach the gospel to such people. Then, in our English text, the New King James Version, most of the new versions don't include this statement right here. It doesn't belong here. It's actually taken from the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Uh, but this particular verse speaks the truth. Uh, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Uh, that would be those who were downtrodden, those who uh, mourn, who feel destitution. It's a more encompassing words than the other words that are used in this text. But because it doesn't belong here, it's not here in the Greek text. I'm going to take it out of the way and we'll just go on with what Jesus actually said. To preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. A captive is a slave, somebody who is enslaved. Jesus was sent by God to preach liberty or freedom to the slaves. Now, again, he's not talking about physical slavery as we generally consider it. He's talking about spiritually enslaved. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul talks about us being enslaved to sin, that we are enslaved to sin. And as such, we can achieve freedom. We can break the chains that bind us. We can have liberty in him as he preached this very good news. Those who were truly captives and understood it, they would jump at the chance or the opportunity to have the freedom that Jesus offered. The Lord ordained him to, to preach the recovery of sight to the blind. These, of course, are spiritually blind. Jesus and Paul the Apostle in particular, Isaiah did also, uh, they speak about people who can see, but they can't see. They can see with their eyes, but they, they, they don't see or perceive life, the purpose of life, what life is all about. They don't see God as the creator. They don't see themselves as the product of God or the offspring of God. These things they don't see. They know nothing about it. They're blind to all the spiritual truths that has been revealed to men. Jesus said, God wanted me to preach to these people. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 28, you recall our Lord said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And he was going to set them free to set at liberty those who are oppressed oppressed I think the best way to explain oppressed is those who are weighed down with burdens now these would be perhaps both physical and spiritual primarily spiritual as is all of these uh, you can be you can be weighed down with burdens because You've got a, a child who is ill, 
and destined for death. You can be burdened with financial burdens. You can have this weight on your back and it holds you down. It keeps you from being happy. It keeps you from being free. But primarily, he's talking about the burden of sin. The woman who left her husband and children for another man. And the guilt she packs around now. So much guilt. Perhaps she's even left this other man and now she has nowhere to go. Sin creates all sort of havoc in our lives. And Jesus said he could set free those who were oppressed in such a way. He could take that burden off their back and let them enjoy life again to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord is the acceptance of the Lord that year. Time had finally come when God was forgiving people of their sins. He was embracing them into his family. And that's what's going on. This family that one could be a part of is only available to those who realize that they're poor. Those who realize that they were captives or perhaps are captives and have been set free. Those who couldn't see the truth and now can, those who are weighed down with heavy, grievous burdens. You can have salvation, he said. Just come to me. He closed the book. He, gave, he didn't explain it as he read it. He just read it. He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. All the, eye, the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. You can imagine how they were fixed. They couldn't believe what authority this man read with. Uh, that's the way it was everywhere he went. And then he began to say to them his explanation of the Messiah. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's the same thing as saying, I am the one Jehovah was speaking about. I am the one that can set you free. And when he made that statement, I could just about guarantee you there was a lot of hearts that dropped into their stomach by the fact that he said that. It's hard to accept, some, accept somebody you've known all of their life, you've seen all their warts. You've seen what you thought were warts. You heard all the rumors that tend to spread about about people. And now this man is claiming he's the Messiah. What was going through their minds? So they bore witness to him. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Some of them, no doubt, were caught up in what he said. However, they said, is this not Joseph's son? That's the kid that lived down the road over here. This doesn't add up. Something seems to be wrong. Why is he making these claims? He never demonstrated such wisdom before. 
where did he get this wisdom? And how dare he claim to be the son of God? Because we know he's not. <clears throat> Some of the things that I think would have went through their mind, my mind if I'd been sitting there, first, why didn't you finish quoting Isaiah 61 and 2? Why didn't you? He seemed to stay away from that. He didn't, he didn't touch such matters much at this point in his ministry. Why didn't you talk about that? Others talked about it. John the Baptist, for example, he talked about the judgment of God quite often. What Jesus read was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stopped. If he would have continued reading, he would have said, and the day of vengeance of our God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the Baptist, he spoke about the unquenchable fire involved in the judgment of this Messiah. It was unquenchable. John the Baptist, I think, may have been a little bit rattled by Jesus' reluctance to talk about such matters. Because we read about him in Luke 7, 18 through 20, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus. And the question was, are you he who was to come or not? John needed to have assurance that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He announced him as the Christ when he baptized him. Was he wrong? This, this preaching, it, it's, it's not the kind of preaching they had been accustomed to. Is he who he claims to be? There's no doubt in my mind, especially among the elders, they would have been running this question through their mind. It would have run through mine. And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? That was a big problem. It was a problem because in John 7, 27, the Jews show us what their thinking was about the Messiah. We know where this man is from, speaking of Jesus. He came from Nazareth. We know that. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. The Jewish legend was that when Christ comes, he's just going to appear like that, out of nowhere. One day, bang, there he is. And he's going he's to raise his armies up and he's going to throw off the hated Roman yoke of bondage. That was the Jewish mentality. That's what they had been taught by their rabbis, that when Messiahs come, such things will happen. And then they look up and they see Jesus, a gentleman, a man who travels with a half a dozen souls and who seems to have nothing much to say about the judgment that is to come. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly to them, he says salvation is only available to those who realize they are poor, prisoners, blind, and oppressed. Now that, that would have gotten them angry. We go to synagogue every Saturday. We never miss a single time. We give alms faithfully. We say our daily prayers ritually. We give to the poor. We're kind to the downtrodden. We sing hymns to God when it's time to sing our hymns. We follow all the instructions of the rabbis. We wash our dishes in a certain way. We wash our clothing in a certain way. We wash our bodies in the way 
the rabbis have taught us to do. And this man says, we have to sense being poor, prisoners, blind, and oppressed. How dare he talk to us that way? How dare he? In John 8, 33, the statement they always relied on, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? They weren't slaves. They weren't in slaves. They were free men. They were strong men. They were prosperous. They were kind of like the people in Laodicea. We read about the third chapter of the book of Revelation. They thought they were rich, and the Lord said, No, you're not rich. You're poor. You're very poor. They wouldn't have understood. He was talking about spiritually. They was talking about financially. And Jesus spoke to these people this day. They didn't understand either. He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Prove yourself. Show us that you are who you claim to be. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here in your own country. Do in Nazareth what you did in Capernaum so we can believe. So we can believe. Show us. A, it was always show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. No matter what Jesus did, it was never enough. They always needed one more sign, and then they would believe. It wasn't about signs. Jesus said only an even adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there will be no sign given to it except one. When he made that statement, he was talking about himself. Today, he's talking about salvation for those who embrace the Christ. John said, although Jesus did so many signs before the Jewish people, they did not believe. They would not believe. You know why? You know why? They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he expected them to do. They didn't want to be a part of him and his bunch. They knew what to do. And they could do it without him. And they were so angry with his men. He said, surely I say to you, no prophet accepted in his own country. And he could have said after that, speaking of prophets, let me tell you about my friend Elijah. <clears throat> I tell you truly, truly is drawing emphasis. Listen to what I'm about to say. Because it's very, very important. Truly, I say, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. During the days of Elijah, it was a very, very hard time. Elijah is known as the fiery prophet of God. Man, he get fired up in a heartbeat. Talk about hellfire and brimstone sermons. He could preach them. Elijah could get caught up in his temper in a, in a moment, twinkling of an eye. He spoke the truth, but the Israelites didn't want to hear it. They didn't like the truth. And that's what it's always about, folks. 
It's not being a, not able to understand. That's not, it, it's, I don't like it. But who wants to say that out loud? God, I don't like you. Nobody wants to say that. Jesus, I don't care about your crucifixion. Nobody wants to say that. That sounds awful. That sounds awful to me to say it myself. Sound awful to my family if I made such a statement. Nobody, people aren't going to say that. Except those who are totally estranged from religion. During the days of Elijah, sin was rampant in Israel. In 1 Kings 16, 33, Ahab, who was the king of Israel during the days of Elijah, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab was a wicked man, but even worse, he had a wicked wife. Her name was Jezebel, and that woman was as mean as sin. She come from the land of Sidon. She was royalty, and Ahab took her to be his bride. And this woman had so much influence over Ahab that she introduced him to Baal worship. And it didn't take a great deal of time before all of Israel was engaged in Baal worship. And God was angry. They had turned their backs on him, and God was angry. To none of them, these widows, to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. We read about that in 1 Kings 17. Elijah did not go to one widow during the time of a three and a half year drought. God sealed up the heavens. No rain fell for three and a half years. Imagine, water supplies are running low. Food supplies are running low. You can't hardly get a pick into the ground. The ground's cracking and opening up because it's so dry. It's almost as though the cracks were like a mouth that was crying for water to help it live and stay alive. And people were going around with their tongues hanging out. Widows depended on other people to take care of them. But other people couldn't take care of them because they could barely take care of themselves. So the widows were in trouble. They had no help. It was a terrible time to be a widow in Israel. And here's Elijah, the prophet of God, a man who possessed certain miraculous powers. And he did not appear to not one widow, except he went to this widow in Sidon. Sidon is a Gentile community. It's a part of Syria. He went to this foreigner, to this gross sinner in the eyes of the Jewish people. And he did for that woman what he would not do for any of the widows in Israel. At the behest of God, of course. Why? Why wouldn't God help any widow in Israel, but he would help this foreigner? Why was that the case? The Jews didn't like this account. It's in their Bible. They don't like it. They don't read it. They don't talk about it much. Elijah wasn't one of their favorite prophets. He wasn't liked when he was alive. He's not liked today by those who claim to worship God in Judaism.
he was despised. And Jesus has thrown this event into their faces. A prophet is not accepted in his own country, he said. And look at the consequences. They didn't accept Elijah. And look at what happened. Look what God did. How does God feel about such people? He said many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. Elisha was a protege of Elijah. He took Elijah's place after Elijah was caught up to heaven. Elisha, very much like Elijah, not as fiery, but he was a truly devout man. He also was a prophet of God during a time when there were many, many lepers in Israel. If you've ever seen the loathsome disease of leprosy, how painful it is, oh my. When you see a person when 75% of their body is eaten up with leprosy, oh my. I've seen people where part of their leg was missing because this, this leprosy had eaten up their flesh and their leg was gone. Fingers missing off a person's hand was a common sight. They had no fingers. They had no thumb. Leprosy just took it over. And sometimes leprosy's on the face, and it eats up the face. And you can see part of the skull because the skin that covers it isn't there any longer. Awful, awful disease. They had to stay away. You can't touch people. Stay away. If you get touched by a leper, you might become a leper yourself. How many times did you back up from a leper, Bill? It's something you tend to do when you're in India because nobody wants to wind up that way. Many lepers in Israel during the days of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Another Syrian. And Naaman, he's a Gentile, He's a leper. God would not heal a leper in Israel, but he would heal this man. How could this be? Elisha was as bad as Elijah. Why was this grace extended to these two outcasts, but not to God's own people? Well, the people didn't care for this. Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. He brought victory to Syria. He brought victory to Syria over Israel. Many parts of Israel, they had taken their land and was making it a part of the Syrian empire. And this was done for him by the Lord, by Jehovah, who had given him the victory. Adding insult to injury, I reckon, God was doing this for the Syrians all the while the Israelites, his people, were broken and bending and just about to fall. Well, when they heard all this stuff, those in the synagogue, when they heard it, they were filled with wrath. Man, they're mad. They're so mad that they rose up. They thrust Jesus out of the city. They led him over here to the brow of the hill on which the city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Death to this man, whom we've known all his life. Death to this man. Look at what he said to us. They were going to kill him right there on the spot. 
Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. How did he get through? I don't know. I don't know. Did the Lord freeze them in place? I don't know what happened. But they were fully intent on murdering him. Somehow, some way, God made it possible that he could pass back through the crowd and go on his way. And that's what he did. The same thing is true today. Nothing has changed. To be approved by God, we have to be poor in spirit. We can't be proud or haughty. We'll be humble, naturally, if we realize who and what we are. We have to mourn our grievous state. We have to realize that without God, we're trapped by sin. And that the only way to freedom is through Jesus. The people of Nazareth got mad at Jesus and they wanted to kill him. He was trying to help them. They were his people. I believe he probably loved them very much. He wasn't trying to hurt him, he's trying to help them. Because they had to repent or they were going to perish. A year or so later, Jesus went back to Nazareth and we're told that he marveled at their unbelief. He, he couldn't believe that people could be that hard-hearted, but they were. It's one of the things that's always scared me is to become hard-hearted, have a seared conscience, become incapable of allowing the truth to penetrate me, to embrace the revelation, to live my life, my way by my rules, all the while of knowing what God would have me to do. To be able to see and then become blind. It's a terrible, terrible thing. It's something we do to ourselves. Nobody can do it to us. It's something we do to ourselves. So we're taught to examine ourselves on a regular basis to make sure that we're still in the faith, that we still have the heart that God would have us to have. We heard it from the Lord Himself, what God expects. So now I ask myself, how do I stand in the eyes of God? Approved or not approved? 